Let's remain standing for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have a great cornerstone on which we can build our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would do that in, in every way, in every day. And Lord, we thank you for these gifts and offerings and the giving that they represent. Lord, would you use this giving to extend and to build your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Picture the scene for a moment. Um, it's the normal chaos of a Sunday morning family trip to church. By the way, well done for making it. I know that all kinds of battles are won and lost even before you leave the house on a Sunday morning as a family or in other situations as well. You made it on time or thereabouts. Everyone was fed, watered, up, dressed. You had a great time at church. The kids loved their groups. You even managed to stay awake during the sermon. And as you're walking out of church, you suddenly remember that this week is the week that you've invited a load of people to come round to your house for lunch. Oh no, panic. On the way home, you quickly rush to the shops, you pick up some last minute bits and pieces, you get home, you're rushing around, children hanging off your legs, the stress levels are high, and then inevitably, the doorbell rings and your guests arrive. You've done it. Everything is ready on time. You've even managed to create the illusion that lunch was effortless. It's been nothing but a joy to host. You sit down for lunch and you think, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice for one of the children to, to pray, to thank, thank Jesus for the food? Now, in the context of the situation, that might be quite a brave thing to do. You say to your three-year-old, can you say thank you to Jesus for the food before we eat today? Your three-year-old turns to you and says, Daddy, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. Let's just pray what daddy would pray. The three-year-old pauses for a moment, opens their mouth and says, Dear God, remind me, why did we invite these people for lunch? <laughs> Amen. Not exactly winning at life. I want us to think about that question this morning. How do you win at life? Maybe it's a question that you've asked yourself before. A quick Google search gives you over 2.6 billion answers to that question in just half a second. People have a lot to say about winning at life. I had a funny thing happen to me a few years ago. I was working for a, a church down in Leicestershire, a small market town. Uh, I, I did quite a lot of schools work during that, that job. And, um, and so I'd been in to some of the schools, the primary schools and the secondary schools, to do assemblies. I often got ruled out at Christmas and Easter to talk to them. And so I'd done a few assemblies in, in the schools. And uh, one day I was walking back to the office and I bumped into a group of about 10, 15-year-old lads terrifying experience. Uh, I, I nearly flattened them on the way around the corner. And, and one of the lads looked at me and he had that, I know you, but I can't quite place you sort of face. He couldn't remember my name or where he knew me from. And he turned me as if the penny, penny dropped one moment. And he said, it's, it's, it's Jesus. <laughs> and I said, no, but I do know him. 
it was a great opportunity to bring God's word into schools in that way. And it's great for us as a church to partner with organizations like Cross Teach here in Nottingham to do just that. But one of my observations about what our children and young people are exposed to, actually what all of us are exposed to, is a sort of Disney view of life. We're told every day, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. And if you've watched any children's television in the last 20 years or so, I asked you the question this morning, can we fix it? You would, of course, answer, yes, we can. It's a sort of Bob the Builder theology that's going on. It's quite revealing of the culture that we live in today. And this morning, I want to ask us to question that position. How do you win at life? People are desperate for all of the fame without the pain, all of the glory, but none of the grit, hard work, determination. You see a professional musician on the stage, you you can't just jump up on a stage and play a violin concerto perfectly and everyone loves it. It doesn't happen without hidden years of preparation. We don't hear all the skills, all the wrong notes. We don't see the hours and hours and hours of investment for that moment. You see the the rugby player. Rugby is a dangerous thing to talk about this morning if you're a rugby fan. The rugby player puts the ball ready to kick for the penalty. He looks at the posts. He looks at the ball. And as he kicks it, he thinks about the thousands of times he's missed. The thousands of times he's failed. There's a strong sense of hidden preparation, countless failures to help him learn how to succeed. The context of our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has been laying out his manifesto for life. How do you win at life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus? He teaches on money, relationships, anxiety, words that resonate as much today as they did 2,000 years ago. And in these verses we have read and which we are considering this morning, we get to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what he gives us is a choice. Actually, lots of choices. There's a choice between two gates, one wide, one narrow, which lead to two roads, one easy and one hard, and two destinations, one destruction and one life. J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets said that it's our choices that show us what we really are, far more than our abilities. I think that's a great headline for what we're thinking about this morning as we think about building up the next generation and giving thanks to God for them. Of course, we want to naturally pray that that the next generation, our children, will make the most of the abilities that God has given them as they grow. But we want to pray that God would lead them in their choices, and indeed all of us. So as we consider this morning the choices before us, to listen to Jesus or to listen to something or someone else, what will be your response two roads and two 
responses. If you can keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 7, uh, we're going to be looking at that just now, 972 in the church Bibles. We read in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Two gates, two outcomes. One gate is narrow, one is wide. The easy way, the hard way. The gate leads to two roads. The do what I want roads versus the do what Jesus wants road. The wide road. The do what I want road. That's the the well-trodden route as Jesus warns us here. And as he begins to come into land in this great sermon for us, he says, beware of that road, the easy road, the road that many go down, because that road leads to destruction. That road leads away from God. We can look at these words of Jesus and think, really? Isn't it a bit harsh? But we must remember that what Jesus is doing He's doing all that he possibly can to get the message through to us, and he's warning us. Of course, there are two types of warnings. Some are ridiculous, aren't they? Like an iron which has a label on it which says, do not iron clothes whilst wearing them. Or the Superman costume which says, warning, wearing this suit will not enable you to fly. Jesus' warning here, it's not arrogant or ridiculous, or it's serious. It's life-defining. If you're on a ship and the ship's heading towards an iceberg, wouldn't you want someone to warn you, to help you? And the warning is this. There are consequences to the path which you follow in life. There are those in this world who will seek to offer us an easy way, which is not good for us. It will only lead to ruin. And Jesus says, there is a better way. It may be a harder way. He says, follow me. The road which leads to life. Verse 14, he says, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. This message is for those people who don't yet trust in Jesus. But it's not only for those people. It's a message for all of us. Because the warning is for all of us. There are some who appear to be genuine followers of Jesus. And they are not. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's possible to come to church hang out with our friends, have a social time, and not have a single serious thought about God, about yourself, about your life and your eternity. 
You know, we know this happens, but have you ever asked yourself, why? Well, that's illustrated, I think, very clear to us as Jesus tells us this story of the two foundations. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, where Jesus lived and walked, it was susceptible to bad weather coming on without any notice at all. And you see in, in various gospel accounts, and indeed in the book of Acts, Seemingly out of nowhere, storms come about. And one one of the effects of these storms is flooding. Waters come through the valleys. Anything in their way would be swept away. And so the good practice, the kind of common sense building plans, would be to build on high ground, on the solid ground. So when the storms came, the buildings would not be lost. Those There might be those who build cheaply, quickly on the silts, but soon the storms would come and the floods would destroy what had been built. Now, recent days in Nottingham and surrounding us, maybe you and your family have been affected by flooding your house, your business, Know that you have the the love and the prayers and the care of our Cornerstone family at this time. Because that can be a deeply um, troubling experience. As we think about our spiritual houses, we see here good foundations are indestructible. It's far too easy for us to ignore the building regulations. And we've got to remember what we're building. We're not building houses. We're building lives. And so Jesus urges us, all of us here this morning, check your foundations. There are two houses, two outcomes. One survives the storm and one doesn't. Jesus is telling us, in our lives, there will be storms. Don't we know it? crisis will develop. Maybe you're in that place even this morning. Build your life on the foundation which will stand. So as we consider the two houses, can you spot the difference between them? The truth of this, it's not a story about being religious or not. It's it's not about being spiritual or unspiritual. Because the story that Jesus is teaching us here is about whether you're wise or foolish. I led a a youth ministry a number of years ago. Most of the young people came from from outside the church. Um, And I remember reading this passage to them and making the error very quickly in my kind of Bible study, asking the question, which of these builders would you like to be like? Which one's the best? 
without exception, every one of them said, I want to be like the foolish one because he sounds like more fun. Astonishing, isn't it? It's not an uncommon attitude today. Actually, as, as some of us might remember, some years ago, a very similar attitude was advertised on the side of London buses, which had the slogan, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. Foolishness. Building life on a probably not. Living life on a maybe. The wise man listens to Jesus. The fool? Well, it would be neat to look at the story and say that he, he hadn't heard Jesus, he didn't really listen to him. But look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. He's heard Jesus, all right. He listens as well. Two people can both listen to a sermon, both enjoy the same Christian music, both download the same podcast, both dress themselves in the same way, and yet be poles apart. We can so easily look wise but act like a fool because the difference between the wise and the fool is that only one of them has taken it in. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The wise man, he hears and he does. He listens to what Jesus says and he does it. The fool takes no action at all. And so when the storm hits, one house stood and the other fell with a crash. Imagine the film scene for a moment. You're in a small plane and the pilot beside you collapses. And you realize very quickly that it's over to you. And just as you begin to panic over the headphones, over the radio comes the voice. It's an experienced pilot in the control tower who says, do exactly what I say and you'll be fine. Listen to what Jesus says, the master builder, and put it into practice. And so as Jesus comes to the end of this great sermon on the mount, the, the responsibility moves from the preacher to the listener. And the same thing happens here now. Are you wise or are you foolish? Not the person beside you, but you. What kind of a life are you building? We're thinking about the next generation today as we've seen parents bring their children in thanksgiving to God. Those who have built their lives, their marriages, are now seeking to build their family life on Jesus, building on his words, his truth, his authority. Tell me, is your life built on this rock? Whose words are going to shape the life you're building? Your parents, your teachers, lecturers, peers, the latest popular voice? What about Jesus, who says, who invites us to build our lives on him? That's the difference between being wise and being foolish. 
What about your life at, at home, your family life? If you're a parent here today, what about your children? We must remember in a, in a right way that our children do not belong to us. We do not possess them in the way that we might possess things or a house or an animal. They do not belong to us. They belong to God. Therefore, we, we, have, we have no right to possessively dominate them, to crush them, their personalities, their gifts, because they are people in their own right, made in the image of God. I find this quote helpful, talking about the home. Chuck Swindle um, wrote this. He said, whatever else may be said about the home, it is the bottom line of life, the anvil upon which attitudes and convictions are hammered out. It is the place where life's bills come true, the single most influential force in our earthly existence. No price tag can adequately reflect its value. No gauge can measure its ultimate influence for good or for ill. It is at home among family members that we come to terms with circumstances. It is here life makes up its mind. Building spiritual foundations, it doesn't begin and end at church. Our priorities are established at home. Parents, especially those of older children and teenagers, you, you may not feel this all the time, but hear me. Your voice is the most influential voice your children are hearing, bar none. We don't always get that right. Build spiritual foundations that will be the bedrock we pray our children will build their faith on. At church, we, we could run the children and youth ministry, which is just fun and games. But we have chosen a harder option, which is to teach God's words to every generation at Cornerstone. We are not a babysitting service. We want to partner with parents in applying God's word into the world that our children are growing up in, not dodging the difficult questions. We want to see what the Lord is doing, what he's inviting us to be a part of. So what about you? As we seek to invest and train up the next generation, as we seek to pass on the baton of truth to them. We can know the builder. In Jesus, we don't have a rogue trader, a cowboy builder. We have one who holds the universe together by the power of his words. We don't have a distant, unresponsive builder who's gone AWOL. We have one who has made himself known to us, the God who has spoken to us, Jesus, who has invited us to call his father, our Father. And to those of us who carry hurts, disappointments, sorrows, pain about our earthly experience of family, 
Jesus has come to heal our wounds. Jesus who suffered himself as he was nailed to the cross to die, to bear our sins, to take them onto himself, who rose again, shattering death, that we might be free. Would you listen to him? Would you do what he says? We have one who has so much to say to us through his word, but for some of us, I sense we're, we're holding back. Are you holding back because you think you cannot change? Invite Jesus, the builder, to do his life-transforming work in your life. Are you holding back because you have problems, hurts, wounds? Are you holding back because you have doubts and questions? Bring them to Jesus. Are you holding back because you do not think you need Jesus? You do. Are you holding back because your sins are many? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What is your response? Well, the response of those around Jesus as he finished his teaching was quite something, as we read in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed with his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Have you had a sense of that this morning? As you listen to Jesus' teaching, have you heard his voice speaking to you? His authority. Whatever the storms that rock our foundations, listen to Jesus. Do what he says. I'm going to finish by using some words from Kristen Welch's book, which is called Raising Grateful Kids in an Entitled World. And there's a section which I think speaks to all of us, whatever our family situation, whether we are parents or single or whatever our situation might be. And it's called the, the Christian Parent Manifesto, but I think it's just a Christian manifesto. And it says this, this world is not our final home. Because of this, we won't always fit in. And actually, we should strive not to conform to this world's. The Bible is our standard for holiness and guides our everyday living. Truth may shift in our culture, but we look to God's word as our standard. There will be people who choose to live differently than we do. This doesn't affect, change, or alter how we treat them. We love people no matter what. There are scary things in this world but we can hold fast to the peace of God. His peace comforts us when we don't understand things around us. God is in control and he sees all and knows all. One day he will return for us. This is our blessed hope. Until that day, we will stand for what we believe is right. We will serve others who cannot serve themselves. We will speak up for those 
who have been muffled by oppression and poverty. We will give more than we take. We will love others because he first loved us. We will follow Jesus wherever he leads. Amen.